This episode of Wealth Management Today is brought to you by Ezra Group Consulting. If your firm is evaluating new technology or looking to improve your current wealth platform, you need to contact Ezra Group. Don't spend another day using technology that doesn't offer a seamless user experience. Your advisors and clients deserve better, and you can deliver it to them with the help of Ezra Group. Go to ezragroup.co, that's E-Z-R-A-G-R-O-U-P.co for more information. It's a pleasure to be here with you, and thanks for joining me on the Wealth Management Today podcast. This is your host, Craig Eskowitz, and this episode is part of my Winners of Wealth Tech series, and it's the first interview that I also recorded as a podcast. I'm sure you'll enjoy it. You can find the transcript of this interview on my blog at wmtoday.com. That's W-M-T-O-D-A-Y.com. The Winners of Wealth Tech is a special series where I interview leaders of the industry and disassemble their habits and traits that enabled them to achieve their levels of success, as well as extract nuggets of wisdom and best practices that they can share. And today on the Winners of Wealth Tech, I'd like to welcome John Michael, the CEO of Circle Black. Glad to be here. I'm so happy you're on the uh, on the show, and you know we've we've spoken in the past, and we travel in the same circles, and I'm I'm really excited to talk to you and sort of get into your background and history and and share this with our listeners. Well, that's great. I I look forward to the opportunity. So, doing some research on you and doing some reading, uh, I wanted to go back in time. I'm sure a lot of people talked to you about Circle Black and Bloomberg. I want to go back to earlier than that and talk about West Point. Most okay. people in our industry don't come from they're, you know, you think the, the elite of the of financial services or financial technology, a lot of it's Ivy League type of people. I didn't go to the Ivy League, so that doesn't affect me, but you came at it from a very different angle. So tell me about why you went to West Point and what made you want to take that route. I think I was uh, influenced from an early age. Uh, I always had an interest, uh, but I also think that service is really important in this country. And, uh, you know, we're very blessed. And I saw that even more when I was in the military and saw other parts of the world. And I, I don't think people realize what a great thing we have here. And unfortunately, you know, people have to step forward, whether it's in the military or whether it's, uh, you know, helping people out in healthcare, other things. I think, I think service is an important thing. And it was something that I, I really wanted to do. And uh, I also wanted to, you know, wanted to make sure that, you know, I didn't at some point say, gee, you know, I wish I wish I could have done that. So I had the opportunity and and, uh, it was it was a great experience for me. I I would say my son went to the Naval Academy and what I told him before he went is I said, it's a it's a great place to be from. It's just not a great place to be at. So, you know, and I would say that about West Point, Uh, you know, they they teach you a lot. You learn a lot. But uh, but you, it's definitely not a college experience. Yeah, it's, it's not an easy experience either. I, I mean, I think that they, uh, they've been at it for 200 years uh, plus, and I think they've learned their craft well, and it's designed to get you down to your inner core and your, your basic values and, and sort of have you understand who you are. And I think, frankly, being an entrepreneur, uh, you know, has been – Uh, it was a useful experience because, you know, there's a lot of times where you just have to, you know, go forward and that, uh, you know, that early training has been helpful. Yeah. I was going to ask how that, how do you feel that, that now it's over 
you know, 30 years ago, almost 40 years ago, that how that helped you shape your future, your later experiences? Well, again, I think, I think it just, you get a sense of, of who you are and what you want to do. Uh, I think it was, uh, it's great to get to lead, you know, men, at, you know, at an early age, you get a lot of leadership experience. Uh, so I think that was useful. I mean, it, it's not, from a technology point of view, you know, we were, we, we were extremely advanced on the one hand uh, with things like M1 tanks. On the other hand, mm-hmm. you know, the, uh, my, com- my computer programs were in Fortran and with punch cards. So oh, sure. I'm not sure, I'm not sure how much it prepared me for the technology world of today, but I, I just think that, that uh, ex- leadership experience, the ability to focus on, uh, mission and goal and accomplish them and that ability to realize that good and bad things happen and you just have to work through them. It was, was good training for me. So how did your son wind up at the Naval Academy when you went to West Point? Yeah, we, 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 we joke about that. And one day a year, the army Navy game, we, uh, were always very competitive, but he was, uh, he was a world-class crew rower mm-hmm. and actually competed at, uh, at Henley. And, uh, uh, Navy has a, a varsity, a very competitive crew team, and uh, he's actually in the Navy Hall of Fame for the for their boat. Uh, one year they were undefeated when they went to Henley and uh, West Point. Uh, it was only a club sport, so mm-hmm. you know that sort of tipped the balance in in uh, uh, where he went. Interesting how those those small things change a lot in your career. It is, and again, I think I think you know what I most appreciate about service, as I said, is think that he, he actually, I was, I was fortunate to serve during the Reagan buildup years. And so I never saw combat, you know, he, he served, uh, he was actually the first class that went in after nine uh, 11. And so uh, he did, he did two co- combat tours. And so I, I respect, uh, respect what he's, uh, what he's done for the country. Uh, and so do I, what, what is his name? Uh, Jay. So Jay Michael. Yeah. Well, it was yep. uh, he did two combat tours in in Iraq and Afghanistan. He did uh, one on uh, uh, on a ship uh, in the in the uh, in the Persian Gulf, and then he uh, he volunteered for assignment in uh, in Iraq with a special unit. That's that's terrific. My hat is off to him, both of you, for your service. After well, West, after your service, uh, and you uh, were discharged, you uh, and you got your you went and got an MBA. Why you started at Merrill Lynch? So why Merrill, and and how did that change the you know, your your trajectory in in the industry? Uh, well, two things. One is interesting. Uh, when you're leaving the military, a lot of people want to give you uh, interesting jobs, leadership jobs, but often with a sort of operation bent. And mm-hmm. I had always been interested in uh, finance. I'd actually uh, run the uh, the investment club at West Point when I was there. And I just always had had an interest and I had gone to, to help pay my way through graduate school. I had uh, gone and gotten a, uh, a securities license, uh, and actually worked in one of the early, uh, sort of independent operations, a, a company called, uh, anchor national, mm-hmm. uh, quote, open an office, whatever that meant in, uh, in Pittsburgh, you know, sort of a one man person. I learned, learned a lot of things about that part of the business, but in particular, when firms were coming to recruit at Carnegie Mellon, Merrill Lynch came and like most of my contemporaries at the time, we all thought investment banking was the way to go. Mm -hmm. And I met with the recruiter for investment banking at Merrill 
and he looked at my Series 7 license and the experience I was having, and he said, hey, I have a good friend who works in the National Sales Organization at Merrill Lynch, and I really think you should talk to this guy. It turned out to be Bob Silver, who ultimately was the number two at, at Payne Weber under Joe Grano. But anyway, so I came to, I got, based on that experience, I ended up doing a summer internship for Merrill, worked for Bob and uh, and Joe Grano by association, and then uh, and then uh, ended up uh, getting an offer and coming back to to Merrill Lynch. And, and that was just a great experience. I mean, it's, uh, from my perspective, that culture, that Mother Merrill culture that people refer to mm. uh, was really sort of magical. And, uh, you know, there was this uh, Lonnie Steffens uh, was there and Wynn Smith and guys like that. And, you know, this focus on the customer and bringing Main Street to, I mean, bringing Wall Street to Main Street was, was really, people uh, embodied that. And, and in some regards, you know, it's, uh, you always look back in the past and think, uh, hmm. you know, sort of there's always this kind of idea that things were better back then or whatever. And I don't know that they were better, but it was a great culture and a great place to work. Yeah, and that was also the heyday. Uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was a lot of fun. We, uh, I got, uh, I was fortunate. I got some, uh, some early experiences and I think I did pretty well. And, uh, so, you know, I ultimately got to run the, the retirement plans business and then build a couple of new businesses, including their online, uh, Maryland's direct and, uh, uh, and the thing that we originally called the investment center. And then, uh, uh and then ultimately those things became combined into what, uh, now is Maryland Edge. Uh, you know those were the early predecessors. Yeah. So tell me, that's that's the next thing. You're you're following my script perfectly. So the next. Okay. Good. <laughs> so, so moving. So the, you're coming from the military, and and you're you're moving into Maryland, and you're you're getting seeped in this in this culture, which unfortunately doesn't really exist anymore. But the, that was, you know, the heyday of investing when the market was was zooming up, and things were really really doing very well. And then what moved you from where you were at Merrill to go into Merrill Direct, which is the online world. It was very new. People didn't think it was going to work. It was a fad. So how did you make that decision to move into that world? Well, when I was running uh, the retirement planning business, one of the things that happened was that Fidelity had come out with basically a no-fee IRA. And we had an IRA that started at $35 and went up to $100, depending on how much assets you had in the IRA. And we did a lot of surveys to understand, uh, one, why people were investing at Merrill. And the fee was a lot of money. Uh, I mean, I think when I started, it was $60 million and, and by the time I moved on to another job, it was $130 million. So, I mean, it was, a, it was, a, it was a, a lot of money that we were generating through the the retirement plans business. But other people were, were in effect giving that service away for free. And when we got behind that, we found out that it had a lot to do with the, the fact that people were paying. It was another way to sort of pay for the advisory relationship. As we went along, we did a lot of research about what our competitors were doing as part of that process. And I, I think I sort of became the Cassandra of the organization saying, mm-hmm. hey, you know, there's, there's things happening out here that we have to we have to adjust to. So uh, there's one meeting in particular that I remember where one, uh, you know, we were talking about what was going on and cause I had ended up uh, as part of the retirement plan business also getting, uh, we started to do market segmentation and I was given a segment called next generation marketing, which was to um, capture the people, you know, under the age of 40, what people now focus on millennials, you know, this is this idea of whatever's coming up and, and getting them in the, in the queue early and so as you looked at that, this was an area where Merrill was struggling and, and, and in particular at the time Fidelity and then Schwab were, were in fact gaining 
client and market share. And, and so as part of that, we had come up with the idea that, you know, we needed to do something about it. And I remember one regional director saying, you know, all we need is a good bear market and people are going to come back to us because they're going to realize that doing this on your own doesn't work. And then uh, we had a bear market and I think it was 92. Mm-hmm. And the interesting thing about that was our market share didn't, what had been decreasing when the bear market came, it, it, it didn't decrease as much as sort of leveled out. But Fidelity's market share actually didn't, didn't, um, didn't stop progressing upward. And so then we went out and we did a lot of research. And what we found is that if you, and I, I call this sort of, I don't know if you have, uh, you know, high school children, but, you know, when, when, uh, when kids were in high school, if somebody had like a, a bad grade or something or a low grade, they might come home and say, you know, well, you know, I did better than these seven guys. You know, mm-hmm. you, you, what, what do you expect? And I think that's sort of what happened. And what the research showed was if you were investing yourself, and it, the market went down. You came home and said, yeah, but, you know, what do you, what do you expect? The market went down. I did the best I could, you know, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But if you'd hired an advisor, if you had a guy, you know, so to speak, and they were typically men at the time, and the market went down, you didn't come home and say, gee, look, I did the best I could. You go, that guy didn't do what he was supposed to do. And so you would, um, not everybody, but people would, you know, would, would either uh, change advisors. Uh, we did find there was a lot of, of channel stickiness, but, you know, the movement was in a certain direction. And so as a result of that, we started to talk about, you know, what are the other things, you know, how do we get so we're competitive in this space? And initially it was to sort of have a, a call center, which was this thing that became the investment center, which ultimately became, as we went along, to, to make it work and to get enough scale, we also looked at what quality control of advisors dealing with clients. And we found that Somewhere around 180 to 200 relationships, the quality, contr- the quality of the advisor's general ratings would start to go down with a significant amount of clients. And a lot of advisors had built their book, and you got to remember in the 80s, you could still cold call, et cetera, right. by generating a lot of customers. And then sort of some of them would mature and get wealthy and they would be great customers, but other ones would sort of still be with you. Mm-hmm. And, and advisors are always worried at that time that, you know, what I called win the lottery, that somehow one of these customers, maybe they would change jobs and get a rollover, maybe something they'd inherit. But, you know, nobody wanted to give away these guys because mm-hmm. every once in a while, one of them would, you know, pop up and all of a sudden have some money. But the research was that it really affected their whole book. So mm-hmm. we did a bunch of things to sort of, uh, one, demonstrate that to people, educate them, et cetera. And then secondly, to incent them originally to move into this call center uh, idea accounts with $25,000 or less. And, you know, then it went over to 50,000 and it was 250,000, I think, by the time that I left Merrill. And so what happened is you would get transferred into this call center and we did a bunch of things then, right? Because we wanted the client to be successful. We didn't want them to feel like they had been uh, downgraded. So we right. built all sorts of technology to both track activity to reach out to them at the right time. You know, it was sort of the early versions of CRM on steroids. And, you know, Merrill had a lot of technology and capability to do that. And so that sort of was the, the first part of that. And then as time evolved, this was the 90s, you know, the, you know it's, hard, it's hard to think about now yeah. actually how primitive we were. But, but there was a lot going on and everybody, you know, wanted to do more things. And, and you had firms like E-Trade coming up, et cetera. And so quickly we said, hey, you know, this is great, but we have some of these customers that just want to trade online. And then there were advisors. We started to do the research and we found that we looked at where checks were being written 
you know, out of CMA accounts. And often they were going to some of these discounted online brokers. Huh. And we said, look, so we would go to the advisor and we'd say, look, they're, they're going to do this. Bu- they're doing this business anyway. Maybe you can keep it if we have this Maryland's Direct. That was sort of what drove the decision making mm-hmm. around that. I will tell you that was that was a very controversial decision at the time. I'm sure. How did you get them to do it? How did you, how'd you overcome their objections? I mean, that was long before people realized the the innovators dilemma and how to can, you know cannibalize yourself that's the 90s um, well one with the lower end with the the investment center or, or what became the financial advisory center there were incentives if you kept a client under a certain amount you know we we did different things with compensation in some cases we would reward you to move it in other cases we would penalize you to keep it we did a bunch of those things so that's how that business really grew and in a short period of time year and a half two years uh, I think we got about 300,000 accounts in there relatively quickly. And I know it's continued to grow ever since then. I think on the Maryland's online and Maryland's direct, it was not, we weren't necessarily saying to advisors, you needed to move the client. We were making it clear to advisors when their clients were maybe doing business away. And that was an option that they could introduce to their clients. We were not on the online side as aggressive about marketing as we were on the smaller account side. Generally, we had built a pretty good system. We got very good marks, you know, from people like Barron's, et cetera. And so, you know, the business, we naturally were were picking up business. We were not doing all the marketing stuff that say Ameriprise or at the time or E-Trade was mm-hmm. doing. So, you know, it was, a, it, was a, it was a business, but it was not a core business. It was actually- Now, I will tell you, the plan was back then, I mean- before I left in 2001, the plan of what became Maryland's Edge, it didn't have that name, but of bringing those two things together and continuing to grow the business, that existed then. To your point about incenting or you know, getting the advisors to do it, I do believe the one thing about Bank America buying Merrill Lynch, that allowed that to happen because the bank was willing to sort of ride, you know, this is from my perception, I wasn't there, this is from a bar, but I think was willing to ride over that objection, which I don't know that we would have gotten over as an independent company. Because they're looking at it from a, a different lens of, of how the consumer operates? Yeah, and I think they, the, the power dynamics shift over time. Back in, in the Merrill day, there was, the branch was very much the power-based. I don't know, again, I'm looking at this from afar, but seeing the recent articles about how Advisors need to sell so many mortgages, so many loans, and they're dropping the name and this and that. I just I think that the bank is can end up more like a bank, you know, which is one of the reasons, frankly, why and we haven't gotten to you know where I am currently. But I think the independent advisory model is really interesting, and you know I don't see anything that's going to slow that model down. Um, I don't think that necessarily that model is growing because people are flooding out of the wirehouses, but I do think that all of the direction, the growth, the you know the, the increasing size is there, and uh, I think that's because, frankly, it's some of the things that made wirehouses great. I mean, if you think about this industry when the, it started, you know, they were using chalkboards, <laughs> and as we went along, eventually they talked about wirehouses being you know you put the you put the order in a tube and then you wired it in, yeah. you know, and so we still use those names, but you go back through the history, this industry has adapted technology over and over and over again. And partly it's because it's not a commodity, you know, so it's not the travel business where a flight from here to 
Chicago is the same. A flight from here to retirement for people is different. And so advisors can add a lot of value. But what has happened over time, if you go back when I was there at Merrill, Merrill had a bunch of competitive advantages. One, they had training classes. So you could come in and you could get trained in the industry. Second thing they had was new issues, uh, which was a big deal originally back then. Mm -hmm. uh, the third thing was you got research. And so, you know, arguably Merrill's research was better than somebody else's research. And the fourth thing you got was technology. And if you now, if you go forward now, 20, 30 years, there, there are very few, if any, training classes. People can, can find training in other ways to get licensed. Uh, and, and we've done some things in the industry to make that a little easier. Secondly, new issues are, you know, maybe that will change at some point here in the market, but it's just not what it was. And you don't have people, you know, getting called up and I've got this new issue and here it is, et cetera. And maybe when some of these unicorns stop being private so long, maybe that will change. But at least right now, that doesn't seem to me to be a big issue. Third is research because of all the things that happened in the late nineties is sort of somewhat embargoed. And you can go out, like go to places like CFRA, the old S&P 500 research, and you can get as an independent, really, really good research in many ways that not very cost effectively. And so the fourth, the fourth rail was technology. And now if you look, I would argue the same way that, you know, things like the iPhone advanced so aggressively in the technology space, you're seeing exactly the same thing in the independent space. And I look at what you can get often in technology of the warehouse and what you can get as the independent. And I would argue in many cases, the independent have a more flexible, more open architecture, better technology solution today. I know I sort of jumped ahead in your interview process, but I no think worries. that's a trend that is going to continue. And the price of technology is coming down. The ability for it to integrate is going up. The choices, you know, just like on your, you know, I, I often say that people don't think of a, a, a smartphone this way, but a smartphone allows a consumer to have his or her unique technology stack because they can just put whichever apps they want and they will just work. And I think you're seeing the same thing in, in the financial and wealth tech space. Moving from, from Merrill in, in 2001, tell me about the shift from there. And what was the impetus behind starting Bull Run Financial? Yeah, so I, I had, uh, well, one, I was associated with Dave Kamansky. Uh, I had been a strategic planner and a number of things at, at, at Merrill. And I had been around long enough to know sort of the old team, new team thing. So there was some, you know, so I was sort of watching as the, as the water was changing. But more importantly, I think it was the late 90s and early 2000s. And all of us in companies like Merrill were watching people in the internet world doing all these interesting things, et cetera. And I think I very much wanted to try my hand. And then I had been talking to a board member at one of the online companies, and he was associated with this company, which was actually called bullrunning.com uh, on their board. And they had, they had some issues that they thought I could solve. And one of the reasons I was talking to this board member is they had tried to recruit me to, to go to another company that was in the middle of, uh, of the country. And because my son was getting ready to go to the Naval Academy, I didn't want to move. And so he had approached me and said basically that uh, anybody who looked at this other job as long as I had obviously might be interested in doing something else than staying at, at, at Merrill. And they had this really cool company, they thought, et cetera. Uh, it was a semi-virtual company and they would move the headquarters to New Jersey. And so I bid on that. I actually started on August 20th of 2001 
And we opened our New Jersey headquarters or office on September 10th, 2001. Uh. And, uh, and needless to say, the T1, and this is how, you know, how much things have advanced, right? I mean, literally one T1, right? Now, you know, you're, anything you can get uh, multiples, hundreds of that, right? But did not show up on September 11th, 2001. So, you know, the interesting thing for me is I went through, you know, what people call nuclear winter in the sort of startup space. Uh, and uh, and learned all sorts of interesting lessons through that process. Yes, that was at a very interesting time. It's it's uh, funny because I was at a startup as well at that time. So it was uh, it was definitely a, not a great time for startups. And the, and the fact that you persevered through the the financial services nuclear winter and then eventually sold the business, I think, speaks volumes to maybe your background, dedication, and and, and connections, and, and and just you know drive to succeed. Yeah, I would say, I think one, I think that's where, you know, when we talked earlier about West Point, I think that that perseverance was probably there. My wife would tell you it was just hard headedness <laughs> and that maybe I should have, maybe I shouldn't have spent so time, so long doing it. But, you know, we did, to your point, we did get to a exit. And, and then after a lockup period, uh, I went to work at, at uh, Bloomberg. Um, but uh, it was, uh, it was an interesting time. It was also an interesting time to I learned a lot about, I guess, what I would call solving pain points. So, you know, at Merrill, we did a lot of research and we, you know, we talked about it earlier, but what I learned quickly in the, if you're going to sell to uh, financial advisors, especially back then, again, a lot of, we were, we were targeted at, our product was basically performance measurement and attribution and a bunch of other things that people thought were cool and consumer facing, but target market was uh, portfolio managers and very high-end wealth advisors, the, there is a difference between a nice to have product and a have to have product and have to have products have to solve real pain points. And so, you know, I, I, you know, over, over the, um, you know, this roughly seven years I was at Bull Run Financial, you know, we, we learned a lot about that as we persevered and ultimately you know, got a product that worked and would sell and, and, uh, and then ultimately exited the company. Um, I also learned a lot about how, you know, uh, venture capital works and fundraising and all those kind of things. Um, and most of which, uh, you know, I, I probably would have preferred not to learn. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, some people, you know, you, you really have to learn things the hard way. Uh, yeah, so uh, yeah, like I said, I could be I could be stubborn and hard headedness and persevere. And that, that that's a that's a that's a positive and a negative. You know, when they when you do the interview and somebody says, "Oh, tell me about your negative," or your you know, you could use that on either side. It's, it, it works both ways. Yeah, yeah it's it's just, uh, it's it's definitely it's definitely a, there was no Google back then to say Google, tell me about venture capital and and how all that works. Yeah, well, and, and I will tell you this, this is, you know, and I, I uh, when I, I, I think when somebody comes for a big company guy for a venture firm, they're either really likely to be close to, you know, becoming a unicorn or flipping or something, but, or, you know, they have, they have bigger problems and they're dressing up a little bit. And, and in hindsight, sure. you know, I think we were in the second category, not the first. I think mm -hmm. we were able to ultimately get there successfully. But, um, you know, one of the things which you don't see anymore, but, you know, the investment round before I joined the company had included three time preferences for the venture capital firm. And we actually had an offer uh, to be bought in uh, 
2006 by Reuters, but it wasn't high enough from the venture firm's point of view. And, uh, and so they, uh, they had, uh, they basically blocked it with their, with their three time preferences. And, you know, their theory was that, you know, already in, in Reuters selling product and, you know, go, go another six months to a year and Reuters will pay a higher price. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm sure that most of the time that's good business decisions. What we, what we didn't know, what they didn't know is that Thompson was going to buy Reuters and Thompson had a competitive product. And right. so we went from, you know, we went from being an acquisition to being, you know, thrown to the side of the street. And uh, mm-hmm. so we did successfully exit two years later. But, you know, we would have been better to exit in 2006 at the earlier time and price. Yeah, there's lots of back uh, you know, hindsight and seeing what mistakes people make of, you know, not selling is probably more often than people say, well, we sold too early. That happens less often than why didn't we sell at this time? Right. So, After, yeah. Yep, go ahead. Like, you, have something else, you have something else to say there? No, no, I was agreeing with you. Sorry. Uh, and then, so tell me about the uh, so after, after the exit of Bull Run. Um, uh, you take some time off. Uh, you know, how long before between Bull Run? Well, I think it's by by two years. So the um, it, you take well, some- we, well, we actually closed the deal. We closed the deal in uh, December of two thousand eight. I I I think I'm not a hundred percent sure of this, but I think I was one of four deals that closed in 2008 after the market crash. And the only reason we closed is we had actually started negotiating the deal way back in the spring. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, I think it was, that's where the sort of perseverance and West, I, I just refused to let the partner that had agreed to acquire us not yeah. to, to, to walk away from that. I think in some right. regards, you know, after 2008, you know, after, after, you know, uh, October, 2008, people wanted to do lots of things, but anyway, we, we closed the deal. And I was locked up, which is why basically I was uh, out of the market for a year. Mm-hmm. Um, as part of that, uh, then I, um, I got, uh, you know, as I was looking uh, for what I wanted to do, and what I actually thought I wanted to do at the time was sort of an RA roll-up. I could see that, you know, sort of in the marketplace, so sort of, you know, like Focus is done or Dynasty is done. Uh, but mm-hmm. as I was going around uh, talking to people, I, I met with a private equity firm who said, hey, you know, I don't know what they're doing, but this guy, Tom Segundo over at Bloomberg, um, I think he wants to do something with RAs. Um, mm-hmm. I, you know, I think he'd probably love to talk to you about your experience, et cetera. So I went over there uh, and, and the interesting thing was that they had actually hired a search firm from California and they had been, because what they wanted to build was, uh, was, or at least what Tom wanted to build at the time was a, was a, a robo advisor or the equivalent mm-hmm. of that. I mean, that word didn't, I don't think existed at the time. Uh, but you know, they could see, see that sort of coming. They wanted to move in the consumer business. They had, uh, they had opened things like, uh, a real estate business, a, a law business, a sports business. Uh, and, uh, and, uh, and so, uh, Tom wanted to, um, uh, to open this uh, Bloomberg Wealth business, a direct to consumer business. And they'd actually in their spec had defined one of the guys they were looking for was a guy who had built, you know, Maryland's direct, et cetera. And so how the search firm hadn't found me, I don't know, but you know, it's not like I was all that hidden, but anyway, so I'm starting meeting with Tom and, uh, you know, it was, uh, you know, he had this idea. They wanted to build, uh, this, uh, this direct to consumer business and, 
you know, it was a, it was a relatively short couple of conversations and I was like, this is cool. This is what I'd like to do. And, and as I said, I'd, I'd been through the raise capital and all that. And I thought, I don't want to, I don't want to do that again. Uh, I'd rather, this, <laughs> you know, I was, this, this is, this is like Merrill Lynch again, right? You have, yeah. you have, a, a, um, you know, you got plenty of capital. You don't worry about making payroll. You got a business plan. Yeah. You have to do all the politics and the PowerPoint presentations, et cetera. But as long as once it's approved, you run hard. And, uh, and so I got hired to do that. Uh, interestingly, a guy named Bill Harris was a consultant at the time. Um, and, um, and for a number of reasons, uh, he ended up exiting, um, not because of anything I was doing, but more of some of the business things that Bloomberg wanted to do and not do. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, uh, and, but we were building this uh, team and we were built, we were going to build an equivalent personal capital. If you go back and look at the, um, all the designs of stuff in the first six months from that period. And, uh, but Mike Bloomberg had the right to, you know, he was mayor at the time, but he had like a strategic review for things that were considered strategic and we were considered strategic. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, about six months into that, I'm, I'm doing a briefing for him. Uh, and he said, this is great, but, uh, you can't, you know, I'm not gonna let you charge on, uh, assets. I don't want to compete, you know, compete with my customers. Um, so, you know, figure out whether you can, you have a business here of doing something else. So, uh, we then spent a bunch of money doing a bunch of research sort of back to the early days of Merrill when I thought about the research that we did and, and, and we asked what I would call the third order questions, uh, which is, so the first order question was, um, you know, if you go out and you ask people, um, you know, what do you think of advisors? They get very low as a group rating, sort of similar to Congress. Uh, and if you ask them how much they pay, they'll say too much. And if you really push them, they may come up with 1%. And I think this is what, you know, the, that kind of research, that kind of communication, at, you know, first order question, you know, drove a bunch of people from Betterman and Wealthfront and all these guys to say, hey, you know, we can do this. What advisors do is they, you know, they manage portfolios and we can just go out and do that and we can use technology. And here's all this research that says, you know, you, you don't need to you have, you know, active management or whatever it is. Right. And so they, they went down that path. Um, we had done that research back at Merrill in the, in the early nineties. And we had gone to what I call the second order question, which was, you know, well, wait a second, but, but why do you have an advisor? Right. Cause you have an advisor and they would go, Oh, he's not like, everybody else. He's not like those other guys. And that's why, again, I use the Congress analogy, right? We all go, we hate Congress, but we send our congressman back every year because we like him because he's not like all those other guys. And so I think in many regards, that's what we sort of discovered at Merrill and lots of other firms did too. And, and I think that drove a decision generally in the industry that, okay, what you need to hire is likable relationship guys because you do business with people you like. If I like you, I'm going to do business with you. And I think that drove a lot of the industry for the next, you know, 10 or 15 years. But at Bloomberg, because we were really trying to figure out, like, is there a problem here? Because we felt there was a problem. We ended up asking the third order question, which is, well, wait a second. If you look at all the research, you don't, you know, as people, we don't have all of our assets with that advisor, right? So why don't we have all our assets with the advisor? And then what we heard was, well, I like him, but I don't know if I can trust him. But it wasn't like him personally. It was like, because I don't know if you can trust anybody in today's world. 
And, you know, and we got lots of examples, you know, 50% divorce rate, right? So you can't trust your spouse half the time or this or that, whatever it is, right? And there's lots and lots of examples. And you see it getting played out in the politics today also. I mean, you know, people have this. So what we ended up then doing is saying, okay, if the problem is trust. Can Bloomberg play a role in that? And what we decided was, and it fit with sort of the culture of Bloomberg and the business model of Bloomberg, we could deliver an information management system that uh, that helped clients know what was going on with their money and therefore de facto also trust or not trust, but either way prove that what they were being told was happening with their money was in fact happening with their money. And, and so then we did a bunch of research and determined that there were basically four pain points. And the first one was how much money do I have? Because people, as we said already, they spread it out. And originally when I started this, I thought they, I thought it was just that some people were sloppy, right? You, you know, I have an account here, I have an account there. It's just, you know, it's too much pulled together. Well, we really got behind the research and we talked to over 6,000 people in various different instruments. What we found was, no, this is pretty much an intentional thing that nobody, that they grew up and either because they read about Madoff and remember this was 2010. So he was very, 2011, he was very much in sort of the news in people's minds. Uh, but, or, you know, your mom said, don't put all your eggs in one basket, but whatever, this is a, this is a pretty deep cultural thing we saw. Mm-hmm. So the first thing is how much, uh, you know, how much money do I have? Because I haven't spread all out. And when I was 30, I put it on a spreadsheet and I could figure it out. But now, you know, I'm married. I got two kids. I'm 42, which was sort of our core client base. And, and I have a million eight again, which was sort of the core. And that was, you know, that was what the averages were coming in when we, when we were live in the business. And I'm too busy. I, you know, I got, I got kids at soccer. I got ballet practice, whatever it is. I need some system to do this because I don't have time to sit down and put it in a spreadsheet. So the first thing was how much money did I have? The second thing was how is it doing? And so from Bloomberg's point of view, this was very, because it's everywhere. So we basically figured out how to aggregate assets and do performance reporting on assets wherever they were. Um, one of the things we found out, though, why we also found out that, that uh, again, on this idea of trust, when we asked why you don't trust your advisor necessarily, give them all this. And one of the things we heard over and over again was um, that when I say, how am I doing? And the advisor has to give me a 30-page performance report, and it's got lots of graphs and charts and numbers, et cetera, and he starts talking, you know, in effect, mumbo-jumbo about it. It doesn't increase my trust. I'm like, I just asked a simple question. How am I doing? What are you hiding here in all of this stuff? So it actually lowered trust. So one of the things we spent a lot of time at Bloomberg was figuring out how to communicate performance. And it's really much simpler than most advisors do. Um, the third question was, is it being watched? And this drove the, because most people, if I like the guy, and he's, good, he's a good uh, you know, relationship guy. I play golf with him. I have dinner with him, but you know, I'm, he's not checking his, his phone all day to see what all the other clients are doing. So who's watching my money. And, and then we did some research and we found that most people think that technology is uh, better able to watch things. They're not not convinced that it can manage things. So it's not like they want to say you should be trading my stuff, but they do want it to be alerting their advisor and themselves if there's a problem. And so we could solve that one. Um, the fourth problem they wanted, which we didn't solve at Bloomberg, what we've solved since was, uh, will I meet my financial planning goals? Um, and uh, we did a bunch of things around that at, at Bloomberg, but there was uh, an internal debate about 
you know, the effectiveness of financial planning when you're looking out 10 or 20 years and whether that's really a valid thing, et cetera. So at Bloomberg, we didn't do that. But those were the four questions. So it was interesting. So that was the first thing we set out to solve. And they wanted, as part of that, some ability to talk to humans. So at Bloomberg, we put in a whole customer relationship so they could call up and get questions and we could talk to them, et cetera, about what the technology was telling them. Not should they buy or sell a security, but, you know, how it worked, et cetera. And that was very important in the, in the value proposition for them. But what we also found out was after you answer that question, those four questions, the pain point that you have goes away because tomorrow, if I have a million eight, 350,000 today, tomorrow I'm going to have, you know, plus or minus a little bit. And if performance is 6.7% today, tomorrow it's going to be 6.7% plus or minus a little bit. So people weren't like, okay, I got this answer today. I need to go get this answer tomorrow and the next day, et cetera. It usually goes away for about six to nine months, unless there's really something going on in the market. So then what happened, which was not in the research, but which we discovered primarily because Bloomberg has a lot of content. And mm -hmm. they said, hey, can you use some of this content since it's here free anyway? And in particular, they had bought Business Week. And so there was a lot of sort of more consumer-friendly, investor-friendly content. And so we started testing what it was valuable. And because if you go out and ask in the research, you want more content, you know, people will say, no, we all feel like we're overwhelmed with emails and all the rest of this stuff. But what we found is if you gave them content just often enough. And so we created scoring models to figure out which is just often enough for each client. And they got more and more sophisticated. We learned more and more about the clients. And it, but it was somewhere between every two weeks and every six weeks was probably about right, depending on who you were. But the second thing was it had to be relevant to you. You had to understand why you got that content. You didn't want a middle of the class newsletter. You wanted to know something that would be valuable to you and so the example I use now wasn't at the time, but, you know, maybe that Brexit, what does Brexit mean generally? Mm -hmm. And that might be because you have European exposure. But we did a bunch of things to learn to try and do, do that. We had very sophisticated expert systems and, and in the, some of the stuff we have carried forward now, people call it artificial intelligence. But figure out who you are, what content is relevant to you, give it to you just often enough that it's valuable to you. And now in our current world, and you view it we, we, as coming from the advisor versus coming from, you know, in Bloomberg's world, it was coming from Bloomberg. But that, that turned out to be very valuable. And people would check in on that periodically. And now where we do it, back then we didn't have an app, but today we have an, an app. And I call it the Starbucks effect or the coffee shop effect, if you don't want to use the brand, which is day in line in the morning. I've checked my email. I've checked my Facebook. I'm still waiting for my coffee and I look and I see that there's a little, you know, notification uh, on my, on my uh, app and I open it up and I read the content. And again, assuming it's relevant, I then find it to be useful and it increases my level of trust. And we've added to this now, we didn't have this ability at Bloomberg, but we've added to this ability, the idea that we don't just do investment content. So if the advisors put in the CRM that you like red wine or you like the Yankees or whatever it is, you will periodically get some content about that. And, and if you go back again to those roots of the 90s and late 80s, guys used to get the, the wine spectator. And if right. I knew you liked a certain wine and there was an article on it, I would rip it out. I'd photocopy it to the four guys that liked that wine. I'd put a note on it and say, you know, hey, I thought you'd find this of interest, right? It had nothing to do with investments. What it did is it said, you and I know each other. We have a relationship. 
and I and, and I'm reinforcing that with the content. And now what you find is technology more and more is able to also do that. So anyway, that was sort of the Bloomberg deal. John, hold that thought. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back with the interview. The Invest in Others Foundation is a nonprofit organization that recognizes financial advisors for their exceptional charitable work. The nominations window for the 13th annual awards gala is now open. I was fortunate enough to attend the gala last year. And one of my favorite parts was the video interviews they did with each advisor about their charity work. It was such a moving experience to see the tremendous impact that these charities provide back to their communities and how invest in others was helping. If you know a financial advisor who is actively giving back to a charity, please nominate them at investinothers.org forward slash nominate by April 5th. Winners will have a chance to receive up to $50,000. That's right, $50,000 for their nonprofit. It's a great way to highlight the good that exists within the financial services area. I'd like to encourage all my listeners to submit the name of an advisor they know to invest in others. That's investinothers.org forward slash nominate. Since I'm sure their charity could use some of these extra funds to help their cause. And take two. The Invest in Others Foundation is a nonprofit that recognizes financial advisors for their exceptional charitable work. The nominations window for the 13th annual awards gala is now open. I was fortunate enough to attend the gala last year, and one of my favorite parts was the video interviews they did with each advisor about their charity work. It was an incredibly moving experience to see the tremendous impact that these charities provide back to their communities and how Invest in Others was helping. If you know a financial advisor who is actively giving back to a charity, please nominate them at investinothers.org forward slash nominate by April 5th. Winners will have a chance to receive up to $50,000. Yes, that's $50,000 for the nonprofit they support. This is a great way to highlight the good that exists within the financial services arena. I'd like to encourage all of my listeners to submit the name of an advisor they know to invest in others since I'm sure their charity could use some of these extra funds to help their cause. After Bloomberg, and that was a, 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 big, a big chunk of time there and a lot of research and a, a lot of effort, then how did that convert into Circle Black? So we launched the product in May, May 1st of 2013. We'd done a ton of research. We'd done a ton of testing. It was, you know, the kind of thing you can do in a place like Bloomberg. And we launched and every month we, we doubled the customer base. And remember, this was a product we were charging. It was an information product. We were charging a hundred dollars a month for. Mm -hmm. And by the time we closed down four, four, four and a half months later, we were at a over a billion and a half in assets and 700 clients paying us a hundred dollars a month. Uh, the average client was, uh, as I said, a million eight, they were age 42, two kids. I mean, we did all this stuff that you can do again with research to understand who they were. So we had seen that we saw the hockey stick effect. I, I believe that, uh, Bloomberg, and I know there are some people in Bloomberg that believe it was they, they should have kept going with it, but there was a CEO at the time was a guy named Dan Dockroff, And he believed, even though we had done all these things to, 
prove that we were not competing with any of the Bloomberg client base, that <laughs> somehow it was still competitive the client base. And so, you know, like a lot of big companies, there was a, there was some politics involved with that and they ended up exiting from all of the consumer businesses in one way or another, as far as I could tell, except for business week and, and the, and the TV and radio, which I think is as much about influencing the general discussion as anything else. But in any case, and I think if we hadn't launched, I would have probably not made the decision to build Circle Black. And and because again, the, the the things I learned in the in the early 2000s about capital raising, et cetera, and how hard it is to be an entrepreneur in this space, I probably would not have said, hey, you know, let's do this. But we had seen the hockey stick. We right. had been actually working on a version of the product for advisors in Bloomberg because we had a lot of advisors that thought originally we were going to be a robo-advisor because that rumor had been out. And so they, they ended up coming in and testing the product initially and then deciding to you know, basically say, hey, can you do a version of this for me? So we had started on that. Uh, when we ended up um, leaving with, you know, with Bloomberg's blessing, you know, they, were, they were fine that could, we could do something, you know, we could take whatever was in our head and we could do it. And, you know, we weren't, we weren't taking the technology and, you know, there were some things they wanted and we made sure we complied with those. Mm-hmm. So we decided to, after some debate and discussion, et cetera, a number of us said, you know, look, we really think that the market needs this product in particular advisors need this product because we could see this trust thing. And so we decided to go Bloomberg. It was B to C and that made sense from Bloomberg's point of view. But for us now being an independent company, we went B to B to C and we spent two years building the product. We launched, you know, January 1, 2014. We spent two years building the product and then we went live on uh, January 1, 2016 and uh, glad to talk about your current business as much as you want. I know you were more interested in the history. So tell me, you know, sure. try to talk about why, why Circle Black is a great thing, et cetera. But, you know, tell me what you want me to talk about. No, that's what I wanted. Well, the one thing about Circle Black I wanted to mention that, that I read somewhere was, did you, did you fund this? Uh, did you self-fund the company? So we have only, we've, we've self-funded and privately funded. So we have, besides the money that I've put in, the, we have about 25, 27 investors that have invested in the company, almost all of which come from the industry. And this comes, this is a little bit related to my background with the venture world. I think that, I think one, FinTech takes a certain gestation period. It's a little longer than some other things, I think. And so we wanted to make sure that we had sort of the right capital structure for that. Uh, we also have intentionally sort of done what I call it a sort of New York focus, which is we're very focused on a business that is a business versus just, you know, growing market share and trying to go fast and raising more money and raising more money. So we've tried to be very capital efficient, maybe too capital efficient sometimes. But in particular, we look for investors that not only could add capital, but more importantly, could add their intellectual capital and their connections and came from the uh, came from the industry. And so we've been pretty successful about that. And, uh, and I think that's paid off well for us. So you mentioned the New York's a New York strategy, I've heard that before, where mostly from New York people that they feel that firms that launch on the East Coast are more capital efficient and more about building a business, whereas firms that launch on the West Coast are more about building uh, a company that they can sell. Yeah, and again, I don't, 
I don't know. I mean, I'm not on the West Coast. I'm on the East Coast. So, you know, it may be just jealousy on our part that there's big dollar checks being written out there. But I think for us, it is very much about trying to be capital efficient and build a business and solve those pain points and grow. From my perspective, I would rather sell product than stock. I will say we haven't made it easy on ourselves. It's, I think it's a harder way to raise money than sort of just, you know, going and finding a venture firm and taking a big check and, and going forward. But it, so I don't, I don't know if there's a right or a wrong way. I will say as a call out to New Jersey, uh, they have a number of programs that, that we've leveraged that, are enc- that encourage technology and, and also biotech, but I mean, we work from the technology side. Sure. Uh, so we're, we're a New Jersey-based company. We do have our primary development office in Jersey City, right next to Exchange Place, which allows me to get uh, all the young New York talent that wants to that wants to work for a cool, growing fintech company. We also have done some uh, partnering with NJIT. Uh, right now, we are we're uh, leveraging their capstone process, where they they have teams of people work on projects for industry. Uh, we literally have four projects with seventeen. Uh, there are students working on that, and that's been very helpful to us. So I think there's a lot of I think there's a lot of reason to be in the greater metropolitan New York area, in particular in New Jersey. Go New Jersey. Yeah, I, I live in East Brunswick, so rah rah New Jersey. Okay, yeah, no, I, yeah. So I think I mean I don't know if you again I don't know where you're you know it's it's worth talking to the NJEDA. I think they're I think they're trying to do a lot of stuff to encourage firms like us to. To be here and and then we we've been you know we've been very happy with the talent etc i will tell you the interesting thing about full run financial you know the company in the in the early 2000s we were actually located in hamilton new jersey right on the northeast train line and i thought yeah. it would be easy to get you know programmers to come out of new york city because they could just uh-huh. take the train line literally they could walk to our office right and i found that i could get lots of senior technologists who uh-huh. were tired of the commute but I couldn't get the young people. So that's one yeah. of the, from one of the lessons learned from the prior war. That's why we're in Jersey city. Yeah. It is interesting how people will, will of different demographics, what they, how far they will go for a job. Yep. And how far they won't. So let me just transition a little bit. That was awesome. I, I really, I mean, I, I like to hear people's history and, and you know, there's a lot inside of, and to try to, and we, I could have done another hour on that. I, I, I I didn't want to dive too deep because I thought you did, did a really good job explaining a lot of those, uh, a lot of different steps in, in your career journey. But let me transition to okay. some different set of questions, which I um, have adapted from someone that I respect in, in the podcast. And his name is Tim Ferriss, who has a podcast called The Tim Ferriss Show. And he asks these very interesting questions, and I, I adapted some of them for my own podcast. So in your personal life, what has become more important to you over the past few years? Um, I think family, I don't know if it's become more important. I think it's always been really important. Um, I think that, um, I I also think you you have to be, um, true to what makes you excited to get up in the morning. Mm -hmm. And, um, I, I, I've seen a, a lot of people, um, in the financial services industry that, chose it or do it and there's some other professions i see this too say law or whatever because of the money and i think it's important to um you know we 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 talk about this a lot you know you know as 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 a as a society but 
I mean, I think there's a lot of truth to do, to figuring out what makes you happy and trying to, uh, and trying to make, and then trying to, to find things that allow you to be productive and uh, do that. And, and I would argue that for many people, um, you, you go to work because you find it interesting and you enjoy the, the, you know, solving the problem or whatever it is that you're focused on. But at the end of the day, the benefits of whatever you make and use it for is, is, is usually somewhere related back to your family relationships and, and trying, you know, I think we all want to, to feel like, Hey, you know, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't miss those opportunities. At least I do. So I, I've always tried to make sure that, you know, I was connected in that regard. Yeah. That reminds me of there's a Japanese concept called uh, Ikiage or Ikigai, which is the work, the work life balance and, and how you, and the, and the different areas, there's four different areas of, of your life. And is there something you enjoy doing? Something you can make a lot of money at? Something that's good for society? And how those things all, um, the overlap of those is the perfect job. See, essentially, because I, I think that's correct. I do think we have, as a society, um, and I think we're coming back to this. If you go back and look at the agrarian society, there wasn't this, um, what, what I hear people say when they talk about work-life balance is like, I, you know, I work, you know, eight hours of my job and then I go home and I, now I have my, my personal mm-hmm. life balance and, you know, I try and balance it out. And what I've seen, and I think technology again has brought this back. You went back to the farm, you know, you lived and worked in the same place. And now today, mm-hmm. a lot of people, you know, are, are we, and we all try and figure out what the right balance is, right? But we're connected mm-hmm. 24-7, right? We, we're right. always connected. And so in some regards, work can always be there. Now you can, you can be, you can let that overwhelm everything else, but you can also, it does allow you to do things like uh, go to a kid's basketball game and, and, and yet still, you know, you know, be able to check out or check in. In fact, back to the Bloomberg black uh, days, we, we used to have this um, one of the research guys. I still remember him. He took his, he took his, his phone. I think probably back then it was a Blackberry. Mm-hmm. And held it up, and he said, "If you can make this thirty seconds of check-in time, so that I can be at a soccer game and check my wealth, or be waiting for a plane and ch- uh, or a train and check my wealth, that's really valuable to me. But you got to mm-hmm. make it, you know, thirty seconds. I don't want to be like, you know, having to get my computer out and turn it on, and you know, blah blah blah. And I think, I think that's what the what the what we as a society are trying to figure out when we talk about work life balance, I think it's it's now in a in a, a connected world, and I don't think it's I'm on or I'm off. I think it's how do I check in, how do I check out, how do I make sure there's a balance to that, and when I'm having a conversation with somebody, am I focused on that conversation? Can I ignore that technology? But then when I check in on the technology, can I can I be focused on it and then? you know, and then right. be out or whatever it is. Are you, I are think you that's present? a big thing that we're trying to do it. Right. Uh-huh. Yeah. So you've been an entrepreneur a number of times, uh, both in, in startup, true startup, and then more of a, 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 a startup backed by a bigger company. So you've had both experiences. So at this point, how do you stay motivated and keep your entrepreneurial spirit going? Oh, listen, I think I, I like, as I said, I, you gotta be solving a problem. And I think we're, we're very focused on, 
I believe the industry needs more things to help advisors and their clients stay connected and, and that build that trusted relationship. And I think that clients want to have relationships with people that can add value and that most of us think that, you know, again, from the research, most of us think that finance is very important, but about 80% of us would rather do other things with our lives than worry about that. So I want to have a partner and I want to be able to trust that partner. And so I want to, to do this. So we, so we spend a lot of time saying, are we, solving, are we solving a pain point either for the end investor or for the advisor? Because obviously we want the end investor to get the technology and then the advisor has got to have his or her problem solved. And so, I mean, I just, I find that hugely interesting. And I think the space is, is moving very quickly. I think there's a lot going on with technology, et cetera. I do think, you know, I have uh, you know, as you said, I'm older, so I have, uh, you know, millennial children and some I of them are worried that. about, I never said hey, yeah, I know, that's all right. <laughs> the, uh, but, you know, they're worried about, you know, will there be this society in, in 15 years where there's the haves who have jobs and are working and interesting and, and then the, the, these other people that aren't, don't have jobs. Now, I, I tend to be an optimist and think this is all going to work out, but I do know that, um, it makes sense to be looking ahead to where, you know, as they used to say, you know, where the puck is going. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, understanding how technology and humans interact and what that's going to be, those are very interesting problems from my perspective. So, um, you know, one of the things that I, I don't see, like, I don't have this image that, uh, Hey, I need to be playing golf in five years, five days a week mm -hmm. or whatever. You know, I probably don't want to work quite as hard as I'm working, but I really enjoy what I'm doing. Uh, right. And as I said, I think it's important just to figure out while you're doing that, how you stay connected with the other parts of your life, like family. Yeah. Yeah, I see retirement becoming a thing of the past, where people are just going to change careers and keep changing careers because well, technology enables you to work from anywhere and do almost any job. Well, I have a father-in-law who's 96 years old, and I think he worked till he was uh, in his eighties, uh, he had, he was, uh, he'd had, he was an entrepreneur also. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the reasons why he's lived so long. I think it's, you know, I, I think I, I, you have to have a per I, I, one of the things I guess you have to have is a purpose. And I'm not saying that retirement's not a purpose, but I think most of us need a reason to get up in the, in the morning. Yes. And, and, and if it's not doing a job then it may be doing volunteer work or, and, and, and all that's fine. You know, whatever, whatever you makes you happy, that's, that's sort of what the focus ought to be. But I just, you know, I like what I'm doing. So I don't, I don't see not doing it. At least, you know, I might be doing it differently. I might be doing it for a different company. I might not be doing it as much, but I, I see sort of, this is interesting stuff. What is something that you believe that other people might think is crazy? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, what do I believe that other people think is crazy? Uh, well, I'll tell you what I do. I don't know if it's crazy. It's, it, it, there are two ideas that I would love. I'm going to slightly work over in politics, not from a particular view, but I, I would love two things to happen in this country. One is I firmly believe that we need universal service for a year or two. And I think we should call it a different word. I think we should call it a tax. And I think everybody, regardless of your income level, could pay this tax and somewhere between, you know, 18 and 25 or whatever. And there's lots of other countries that could do it. And I don't think it needs to be the military. I think a military right. could be a choice. You could, you could work on Indian reservation. You could change bedpans. 
and I think this is important because I think what ought to happen is if we did this and we required, and, and I think it has to, you can't be able to get out of it. Whoever you are, you have to do something. And I think you also have to do it in some other part of the country than where you live. Mm-hmm. And because what I saw in the military, one of the things about the military was it mixed people from all sorts of different parts of society. And I think that actually does a lot to break down these barriers that, that exist about, you know, what we think about each other and, mm-hmm. uh, and, and, what I would call the others, whoever the others are in your life, because you actually meet those people, you spend some time with them. And I think it also expands everybody's horizon. So frankly, that, that I've been on that for my personal belief. I, I don't understand why that doesn't happen because I don't talk to anybody who thinks it's a bad idea, but it never mm-hmm. seems to move forward. The second idea, and this has to do more with my current business, which is I firmly believe that uh, there should be a program for Firms like ours that say, if you hire a programmer over the age of 40 who is a first-time programmer, there's a tax incentive or there's a tax incentive for somebody else to train them or whatever. Because I, I, I hear from people all the time, you know, that, well, you have to be in your 20s to be a programmer. You had to grow up with, you know, technology, et cetera. And to me, programming is just language. And I, I see lots of people that learn French when they're 60 or whatever, right? And I see no reason why they can't learn programming when they're 40. And I will tell you, pro, at least from where I sit, generally programmers are hard to find. And, and so, and we, and we, we, for example, will hire programmers out of, you know, computer science programs, but we'll also hire them out of programs like General Assembly, which is, I think, six months of sort of basic coding. And then they get a lot of OJT right. when they come to work there. But I, I just, I think that as a society, we have sort of this you know, and, and they, if you go back in economic books, you know, they talk about, you know, the car and the horse and buggy. And there's this, whenever you have these massive technology shifts, there are people that get left behind. But interestingly, I don't think in all cases they need to get left behind because this is a skill that can be learned at any age. And, and, and we should encourage people that are, you know, for whatever reason, you know, whatever they were doing isn't, isn't as, as much of or as available this seems to me like we should encourage them to get this training. I think it will only make our society richer. So I guess that's as close to the crazy idea as I had. Yeah. I mean, I would agree with that. I mean, as someone with a computer science degree, I can say that the programming has changed tremendously in the last 30 years where it's, it's a lot easier to program. There's a lot more languages available, a lot more things you can do that are programming like scripting languages and such that people who don't need to have the engineering or, or math backgrounds that we had to have and, when I went to school, that, that you can still do what's well, in effect programming and programmatic type tasks. Right. And, and firms like ours are looking for those guys and gals. Maybe that's, maybe that's some sort of opportunity we can explore. Yeah. Um, so at your, at your current firm or the firms that you have, you have run, how do you identify people that, are, that will be a good fit for your firm? Um, listen, I think it's all about culture. Um, it, um, so part and culture comes from both sides, right? It's the people you hire, they bring some culture to it. And then it's also culture that, you know, from management level, you're sort of driving down and, um, you know, listen, I, I don't think any of us, at least we're not perfect at it, but we try and be clear about what differentiates us, what we're trying to do, what we think is fun. You know, we have sort of the normal interview process, et cetera. We make sure that, that, you know, people spend some time with us before we make them an offer so they can, they can see what, what we're like and what they're like. I mean, you know, one of the benefits of 
you know, firms like ours is, um, you know, pretty, there's a lot, there's a lot more flexibility than there might be in, you know, in, in a, in a big firm, uh, you know, at, uh, you know, back in the day at Merrill or even when I was at Bloomberg, you know, there was a lot of, you know, wear coat and tie and Bloomberg, you know, you badged in and you badged out and all this kind of stuff. And there's nothing bad about that, but you know, at, at uh, you know, at circle black, you know, if you want to come in shorts or, t-shirt or whatever and you know you you know we have lots i mean the i'll tell you an interesting story the so the the the, the um, guy that uh, is our landlord at the where our our tech center is um he uh he had a uh you know i wanted to make sure when we did the lease that we had 24 by 7 access and i said to him you know hey i got guys that work late periodically yeah. well he had a he had an alarm on his door that when somebody went out in or out between 12 and 5 it would, you know, camera would go on an alarm would go off in his house and, mm-hmm. and, and in fact, wake him up. And, and because I think very rarely it happens, so it was sort of a security measure. So we started working there. And, you know, after about three months, he complained because he was getting woken up almost every night. Mm-hmm. Somebody was, was leaving at, at two or three in the morning because, you know, we, again, if you like what you're doing, we had guys that, um, that, you know, they were involved in a project and we were, you know, we were building things and they wanted to do them. And so they stayed till they were, they were done. Not because we said, Hey, you have to do this, but because they found what they were doing really cool and interesting. Mm-hmm. And that's uh, a great thing that, that, you know, you've got people who enjoy their work and, and they're, they're, and they get paid. So it's, you know, you're getting paid to do something you enjoy. Right. Uh, so what is your morning routine? What do you do during the first 60 to 90 minutes of your day? Uh, well, some of it is aspirational. I, I typically try and exercise, Mm -hmm. (laughs) uh, you know, uh, I'm a, uh, I'm a guy who, uh, likes to set. So I'll sit down and set my priorities either the night before. Uh, but even if I do, I'll review them in the morning. Uh, you know, again, depending on schedule, you know, I may have a breakfast meeting or whatever. Uh, but if I, if I'm going to the office, uh, I probably typically will spend after, after checking my priorities, I, you know, uh, and I know periodic, I tell myself it's not the most efficient thing, but I usually pound through, um, you know, the first set of emails, uh, and then, you know, and then I'll hit the priorities and then, uh, and sort of do the same thing at the, at the end of the day. Um, but I tend to be very much focused on a, a to-do list, uh, which is, always way too long. I've, I've, you know, I've, 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 I've found different technologies and different ways to sort of prioritize it into the, you know, into the top five, the top 10, you know, whatever, but that, that seems to be, um, I don't know though that I am the, uh, you know, I've probably read every efficiency book, but I don't know that I would say I am the, uh, the, the poster child of that. Well, if you do an interview about efficiency, I read a lot of those books myself. The, yeah, I will tell you one of the things I do try and do is, uh, and I got this, I work for a guy named Lonnie Steppens uh, back at Merrill, and he used to talk about, you know, people should spend an hour a day thinking about their business or whatever. Uh, I mean, I think you're always thinking about your business, but I do try and and take a couple of minutes every day to sort of think about a problem. And, uh, and uh, I, I usually, uh, I have a, I don't do a, I do an online sort of uh, uh, Evernote's kind of journaling kind of thing. And so, mm-hmm. you know, I have, I have lots of these like problem X and I'll spend 10 minutes, you know, you know, sort of brainstorming myself about, you know, how it ought to be or, 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 uh, you know, what might be potential solutions. And I, you know, I find that helps, 
you know, in this business, like any other business, there's a, there's a balance between creativity and, and technology. And, and you, you know, you're, you're successful if you can get that creativity brought in, at least from my perspective. Speaking of successful, who do you think of when you hear the word successful? Um, you know, it's, uh, I, I don't, I mean, I think there's some, you know, obviously, uh, uh, I think of people like politicians and generals and some guys in industry, but, um, I, I tend to think, I, t- I tend to measure it in a different way, I guess, in, in my personal life is there are people that are happy or happier. And, and I think they're, um, successful. Um, I know some people that are, you know, viewed as successful on the outside. Um, and you know, uh, we all have, we all have internal struggles. You know, it's like, um, you know, if you drive by somebody living in a big house, you go, Oh, that would be nice. Or, you know, I, I don't know how many people go, Oh, you know, it must be great to run your own company or whatever. And it is great, you know, but it's also, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a challenge to it. You know, every day is, you know, you're never away from it. You're never, you know, you're never like, Hey, you know, you know, so I don't, I don't know that I, as I said, I try and I try and I guess I spend more time, trying to think about, you know, is what I'm doing, you know, hopefully making myself and my family happy and those I care about and less about, you know, gee, this is, you know, this is Uber, let's say, and I'm a, I'm a unicorn, you know what I mean? Yeah. I'd love, I'd love that to happen, but you know, that's not my focus. That's not my focus. My focus is on, are we solving problems and does it make me happy to solve the problems I'm solving? Is there bad advice what bad advice do you hear being given out most often? Um, that's an interesting question. Um, I'm trying to think if there's any particular um, bad advice. Um, the only bad advice I think I see, uh, uh, I see, uh, I'm involved in some entrepreneurial organizations. I, I think that mm-hmm. I, I, I don't know if it's bad advice. I see people that very much feel like, um, their children should follow them mm-hmm. in whatever they're doing. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I think it's important to, and not that they shouldn't come into the business. I mean, you know, uh, but that they, that it's some, it needs to be their choice and it needs to be, and it needs to be in their way, whatever that means. You know, I think, I think too many of us just in, envision a, a day where things are going to happen away and don't have enough conversations about that. So I guess if you're, you know, that would be more on the entrepreneurial side, but I don't, I don't have a, I don't have a long list of, of bad advice. Cause again, I think, it, I think it, it's customized to who you are and, Mm-hmm. My wife has a saying that's like, you know, here, I'm gonna tell you what I think, take what you want and leave the rest behind. I think that's, I think mm-hmm. that's sort of true. I mean, you know, even if somebody was listening to this interview, I, I assume that they're only going to, you know, those, some things will resonate with them and some things will be like, oh, that guy doesn't know what he's talking about. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Probably more of the former and less of the latter. Uh, who knows? 
with many different business uh, ventures and, and different um, careers, some succeed and some don't succeed. And they say we learn more from our failures than from our successes. So what is your favorite failure that you learn the most from? Uh, I mean, listen, I, I, I learned the most from the seven or eight years of Bull Run Financial. Uh, we've tried to incorporate those lessons uh, into Circle Black. Um, you know, the, the, the challenge of that, though, I am reminded that um, you had to be careful not to fight the last war. So, you know, one of the things you asked earlier about was our funding and why we had chosen to, to only fund, you know, privately and, and not do a venture round, at least so far. You know, that probably has a lot to do with my experiences at uh, Bull Run Financial. They may not be, you know, those, those you, you just, you have to be careful that you don't, uh, you know, as I said, fight the last war. You have to recognize that, that it's a different environment. It's a different business. Different things are different. And so, you know, I think that the, uh, the challenge, you know, you, I think we all have to continue to challenge ourselves to say, um, you know, am I making the right decisions? The other, I guess, you know, the one, I guess the one thing I would say that I don't know if it's bad advice, but I think too many of us also look backwards and, and by that, I mean, you know, whatever the decisions were good or bad, they can't be changed. So in my mind, I tend to look at every day I get up and, and maybe this is back to your earlier question and say, mm -hmm. what are the, what are the things I should be doing today? Because whatever I did yesterday, even if it was wrong, mm -hmm. I can't change it. You know I mean? It happens. So and I sort of look at that, you know, also from a time point of view, you know, I, I, I hope that, you know, I've got another 30 years left or whatever, but I also recognize that, you know, as you, as you, you know, you never know whether tomorrow's really going to come. You can be driving down the road. You know, we, 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 we use this phrase in my company, you know, do we have the right, um, do we have enough uh, cross training that if somebody gets hit by a bus, you know, and, you know, you don't really think about that, but, you know, and it doesn't happen very often, but, you know, people do and, and get hit by that proverbial bus every once in a while. And so you just, you want to make sure that you've, you've thought that through both for yourself and for your family and for your investors and for your company. Do you give out books as gifts? And if you do, what book have you gifted most often? Uh, I do. Um, it tends to be within the company. Uh, where I've given business books like the one that, that I think has been most useful to us is a book called Traction. Uh, I have given, uh, you know, I give books to friends. One that I particularly like is uh, uh, one called New York, the Novel by Rutherford. And the reason I like it is one, because I've spent so much time in New York, I just found it fascinating. How he does a very good job of describing how the city grew up. But the other thing I sort of found fascinating is, and this may just be because I have three sons, but he does a lot of... Uh, he does a lot of discussion about uh, father-son relationships and how um, if you sort of go through the book, each son is generally, or the sons are generally successful, but almost never at exactly what the father did. So, and I think, you know, then back to the earlier discussion, I, I think that's a good, you know, we all, especially as fathers, we all sort of, you know, we can be very like, you should do this or you should do that. And I think right. it's important to sort of recognize that everybody has, a, a you know, their paths are going to be, you know, influenced, but different. Exactly. Yeah, and that's the key is that they, they find their own way and you support them. All right, so wrapping things up, is, is there a quote that you live your life by? I, I, I think it's, I would say, I try and live by the golden rule, you know, to do unto others what I would like done to me. 
you know, I think there are days you do better and worse at that. But I, I guess if I said, hey, there's something that I really, you know, try and, and, and do, I, you know, I, I try and treat others the way I'd like to be treated. Mm-hmm. And what, if there was, if it was possible, uh, what message would you send to your 25 year old self? I think I would have been early on less worried about laying everything out. I mean, I think on one hand, it's, you, you were asking good about success or not success. So I'd read, you know, that people, you know, that there was a study, I think at Harvard or somewhere in the late fifties where people that wrote down their goals were more successful than people that didn't. And, mm-hmm. you know, and so, uh, I've been one of those guys who writes down the goals. I still do. Um, I have a bucket list now. I read a book with a guy bucket list and he created a hundred things on his bucket list. And I thought that's an interesting idea. I tried to do that. I think I came up with 25. It's really hard to like find a hundred things that, you know, you have to do or whatever, at least I, from my perspective. And maybe that's cause I've traveled the world a lot and seen a lot of things already. But, um, you know, I think that sometimes you can become too focused on sort of, the goal and less on the journey. So I guess I would say try and enjoy the journey more. That's a good one. And would that change if you were sending the message to your 35 year old self? Yeah, probably not. <laughs> it might not change <laughs> to my current self. You know, it's get, you do get in the battle, you know what I mean? And it's like, sometimes you're just like, Hey, I gotta, I gotta get this solved today. And sometimes what you thought was really so important today, if you look back at a year later or six months later, it, it just wasn't the big deal you thought it was indeed and just to end things i really uh, appreciated your time thank you i hope it i hope uh, it turns out well i'm, I'm sort yeah. of interested in seeing how it looks <laughs> it's going to look and sound fantastic because the, uh, i think there was a lot of interesting stuff that came out of it and i, I appreciate your openness hey, everyone and it's craig again and, and just a few quick items before we go listeners if you well, like great. this episode please give it a five-star review on itunes i would very much appreciate it And remember to check out the show notes for links to everything we talked about on this episode. For more information on wealth management technology, you can read my Wealth Management Today blog at wmtoday.com. Thanks for tuning in, and I'm looking forward to talking to you all again next week.